And welcome to another episode of the Battle Round. I'm your host, Paul Valley, and joining me now permanently is our co-host Zach Goodman from the Nate Hit the Foul Pole podcast. Zach, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Paul. How are you? I'm doing very well. Glad to have you in the chair full time. Now I want to send out a special thank you to Vasilios Nikolaou, the sports producer over at WBAL, who sat in the first three weeks of the show and helped me co-host this show. Uh, Vasilius did a great job, did a great job. He is more of a football guy, kind of stepped out of his his comfort zone a little bit to help me out with this show. I am greatly appreciative. Vasilius does a really great job with his own podcast called The Extra Point uh, that you can follow. WBAL also boosts that show for him. He does an excellent job talking Ravens football. And while he did a great job talking Orioles baseball with us, Football is more his forte. So again, check out the Extra Point podcast with Vasilios Nicolau uh, and give him a couple of likes and shares uh, because he does an excellent job talking all things Ravens football. With that being said, Orioles lost a heartbreaker last night. And I'm going to say this right now. I'm going to move a little bit away from my microphone to say this because I have to yell, Stop pitching to Randall Grichik! We got to stop pitching to Randall Gritchick. And I say we, I'm not part of the Orioles, but I am heated right now because the dude is 8 for 18 with five home runs and 13 RBIs in four games. Four games against the Orioles. Stop pitching to him. Stop pitching. He has single handedly won all four games against the ball club this year. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen this over and over with guys against the Orioles just having incredible seasons, and maybe that's because the Orioles don't have top-of-the-line pitching or a great bullpen or a starting rotation that's going to knock guys out. But you look at Glaber Torres and Mookie Betts and Aaron Judge and all these guys that have terrorized the Orioles over the years, and here's Randall Gritchick. He's the newest one, and maybe even the best one. I, you know, obviously Glaber hit a lot of home runs last year, but Gritchick is making them count, and he's hitting them in, in situations that really are high leverage. Well, yeah, and Gritchick got that big contract the other the other year from the Blue Jays for a reason. Uh, he was out in St. Louis to start his career, wasn't he? Is, is that where he was? I believe, yeah. Yeah, he was out in St. Louis to start his career, and he had 30-homer potential out there. I think he had a 30-homer season out there for them. And he, he was a solid ball player, maybe not a $15 million a year player like he is now with the Blue Jays. But he, he got off to a slow start this year, and then all it takes is, is a little bit of Orioles pitching to get these guys going. You mentioned Betts, Judge. Uh, I look back at guys like Nick Swisher and Michael Saunders who would just do this stuff to the Orioles year in and year out. Okay, you look at that game last night. The Orioles are up 4-3, to three, bottom of the 10th inning. They have two outs. It's a 1-0 count. And Cole Salser, who for some reason is the, is the closer, on this team. He's having an okay year. His ERA is about 3.8, 3.8.5. Um, but he's blown three of his eight save opportunities. You can tell pretty early on what version of Cole Salsa we're getting. Um, yesterday, his command looked good. His command looked good. A lot of times when he doesn't have it, he's he struggles to find the strike zone. But then he leaves a meatball over the outer third of the plate to Gritchick and Gritchick was all over it, 400-foot home run to dead center field to win the game. And I go back to the first time, the first series against the Blue Jays. When you had that game, it was 7-7, seven, seven, 
in the 10th inning, and you have runners on second and third with one out, and you have Lourdes Gurriel out. And I'm screaming at my TV set for them to walk Gurriel to set up the double play, bring in Tanner Scott. Well, they don't walk Gurriel. He hits that ground ball at first base. We know what happens. Chris Davis makes the errant throw. They score the the go-ahead run to end up being the winning run. And then Tanner Scott comes in and strikes out the next two guys. Hindsight's 20-20. I was calling for it before that. My hindsight wasn't 20-20. My current sight was 2020 with that not to pat myself on the back that's not what we do here but they didn't walk Gurriel in a bigger situation so I understand not wanting to walk Gritchick and put the go-ahead the the game-winning run on first base especially when you're playing away from home and when you have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming up but you can't let him beat you you can't let Gritchick beat you. This is an opportunity for you to kind of announce your presence with authority. And by that, and a lot of people don't agree with me on this, I don't care. Give the guy some chin music. I'm not saying throw at him. I'm not saying hit him. I'm saying make him uncomfortable in the box. Because right now that dude is locked in on Orioles pitching. Do not let him dig in and get comfortable. You know, if, if, if it's 1-0 and you just missed away, come high and tight. Come high and tight. Make him think twice about digging in there, and then maybe he doesn't hit a game-winning walk-off two-run homer. Four walk-offs in the major leagues last night, though. Four. I can't remember the last time there were that many on one day. But Orioles lose 5-4 to four. a day after boycotting and postponing the final game against Tampa Bay. And look, it's the elephant in the room, right? There's a lot of social injustice that happens in the world. And when it comes down to it, sports should be secondary when it comes to stuff like this. It's a polarizing topic. It's something that we have to address. Look, folks, and I posted this on Twitter. If you are more upset that a game got canceled for social injustice than you are for social injustice itself, you're focusing on the wrong things. The bottom line is that players in the NBA, the NHL, I don't know if the NHL or not, but I'm sure, um, and Major League Baseball and practices in the NFL were all canceled because what are they? They're a distraction from the issues at hand. Playing sports or not playing sports may not change what's going on in the world today. But the bottom line is we shouldn't be allowed to have this distraction and take our mind off of what's going on out there. And if these professional athletes using their platform, because they have power, they have us at their beck and call. We want to watch them. If they use their platform to say, hey, don't watch us, watch this, and do something about it, then they should do that. And I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to begrudge players for not wanting to play when black men and women are being are being murdered regularly in this country because of the color of their skin. We can't have it. We can't have it. And honestly, if, if you don't agree with me, look, I'm all for dialogue and discussion, but I don't want to have the conversation with you. I don't want to have the conversation with you. It's not a political thing. It's not left wing. It's not right wing. What it is is human decency. 
and men and women are being gunned down because of the color of their skin. And like, look, my brother-in-law is one of the best men I know, and he's a police officer. He does not fall into that category of these police officers that are that are shoot first. We're not going to get into what happened to bring this back into the limelight. It should have never left the limelight until something was done about it. And we're not going to be able to change people's hearts. But we need to change what we do about these actions and the consequences for these police officers and these other people who are trigger happy and pull the trigger first, ask questions later. We just can't have it. Kudos to professional athletes for standing up and saying, hey, this is our platform. We're not going to just sit here and entertain you while people are dying left and right. Yeah, it's been said many times that sports are a reward of a functioning society. And right now, it doesn't look like we have a functioning society. And and like you said, there's just so much injustice going on around the world. That's horrible to see. And, uh, you know, hopefully there are people that are brought consequences for their actions because something needs to change. 100% agree. Couldn't have said it better myself. Now, look, folks, we're a baseball show. And as much as I would love to talk about equality and everybody having the right to the sa- to live the same life with the same benefits as everybody else. That's not what this show is. This show is about baseball. So we're going to move on and we're going to talk about baseball. Hanser Alberto, 4 for 5 last night, drove in what should have been the game-winning run for the Orioles. Uh, 8 for his last 17, I believe. So he's bounced back really nicely. Ryan Mountcastle, this dude. Two for four last night, two RBIs, got three multi-hit games during a five-game hitting streak, batting 400 since his call-up, six for 10 on breaking balls this year. So they're not throwing him a lot of fastballs. They're going to. He's going to get his fastballs. He's going to mash. But right now, they're trying to keep him off balance with off speed, and it's not working. They can't get him out. Ryan Mountcastle off to a great start. Iglesias makes his return to the lineup last night. So did Pedro Severino, 0 for 4, 3Ks, little rusty. Iglesias came back and looked like he didn't miss a beat. Two more hits last night. He's hitting 400 on the season. But then you look at Anthony Santander. One for 13 since his 18-game hitting streak was snapped. Uh, he went 0 for 5 last night. And he's 5 for 30 his last seven games. Yeah, like you said, all the guys that came back, like Iglesias, he's looking really, really good. And Hanser was really struggling over the last couple days, and, and he really turned it around, and now he's hitting the ball really well. He was chasing a lot above the zone. They were really exposing his swing-happy stance and his form, and uh, it, it looks like he's figured it out at the plate, had a couple bloop hits, but that's what he does. He doesn't really swing hard. He doesn't have high exit velocities. He bloops things, and he makes it happen. That's why he hits you know, above 300 every year. Uh, but Severino, I'm sure he'll get it together. It's not a big deal last night. Santander, I, I don't want to say I'm too concerned at all. I, I think guys get cold. Mancini was one for 17 last year in multiple spots, and he still almost hit 300. Right. So it, it happens once in a while. He was so hot before. You're bound to come down to earth at some point. You know, one for 13 is not the biggest deal in the world. I'm sure he's going to turn it around. Right. And, and Santander, before this rough stretch, and he, and he could still be – firmly implanted in this conversation, but he's having an MVP caliber season. And this is a guy that when you're on the team that won 54 games last year and they won 47 games the year before, and they're expected to be the worst team in baseball again this year. And right now they're 14 and 17. You can argue that they should be 15 and 16. You can argue that they should be above 500 because they've, they've blown some games and they've, and they've missed some opportunities. But Anthony Santander is right in the heart of that order 
just driving the baseball. I believe he still leads the majors in extra base hits. If he doesn't, he's right there at the top. He's in the MVP conversation. This is a team that nobody expected to do anything. They're not that far out of a playoff spot, and Anthony Santander is leading the way. I saw, I liked what I saw last night from John Means. John Means, four innings pitched. Uh, he gave up the two home runs to lead off the fourth inning, the only two runs that he gave up for the game. Zach, my, my issue here is that, and you're going to talk about this in sounding off, okay, but my issue here is that the Orioles are letting John Means start every fifth day when his, his stamina is not up. And he's going out there and pitching three innings, four innings. It was, is it, four and two-thirds is his high watermark for this year. They, he was at four innings or 65 pitches last night was, was his limit, whichever one he hit first. Why is he not building up his stamina down at the alternate training site? And why is Keegan Aiken not up here getting starts or Dean Kramer or Michael Ballman or Bruce Zimmerman? Now, look, if they're not ready, they're not ready. But you're yo-yoing with Keegan Aiken. You, you called him up when LeBlanc went down. and I'm not stealing your thunder. I apologize. I'm not going to steal your thunder here. Um, you, you call him up. You send him down. You call him up. You send him down. And meanwhile, you have John Means going out there every fifth day throwing three, four innings, taxing your bullpen. To me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense that Means isn't regaining his strength down at the alternate training site so that he can come for the, and pitch in the last month without restriction. It's pretty clear to me that Brandon Hyde doesn't trust John Means yet. Maybe he hasn't developed the pitches he wants to so far on the season. He can't go as long as Brandon Hyde would like him to. But Brandon Hyde took him out last night after he was pitching well. I, you know, I don't care so much about a pitch count when you've got a guy pitching so well. He had only given up two earned at that point, and they were both back-to-back home runs. He would gotten it back a little bit after that. To take him out and not let him keep working on things and developing pitches is just not the right move. If you want to take him out, just send him down to Bowie, like you said. That that would be the smarter decision. And you know, there are, there are guys in Bowie like Zimmerman and Bauman and Aiken who deserve these opportunities. If you've, you're going to pull a guy after two or three innings, right? And I understand the pitch count. I understand the ups limit, four innings. Three innings, whatever. I, I get it. You don't, especially in a truncated season, you don't want to overtax this guy in a season that, I mean, let's be honest, folks. I love baseball. You love baseball. We love baseball, and we're happy to have it. But it doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. Uh, whoever wins the World Series, people aren't going to look at them as the same, the same as if they had won it in a full 162-game season. If the Orioles make the playoffs, it doesn't change the rebuild. It doesn't mean that they're back. You know, so I understand not wanting to rush John Means back in a truncated season. But like you said, if that's the case, do it a buoy. Do it a buoy. We don't need to see this guy go out there and tax a bullpen every fifth day, especially when the bullpen's been pitching a lot this year. You know, the Stars have not been great the last two weeks. The Orioles have three wins as a team since two, in, in the last two weeks. Uh, we stop taxing the bullpen. Just stop taxing the bullpen. Uh, maybe Means will have the handcuffs off next time. Maybe it'll be five or six innings and 85 pitches. Maybe after they got to 65 pitch count, it's like, all right, man, you're unleashed. Go do what you got to do. We'll see how it goes. I just, I don't like the idea of, I've never liked the idea of an opener, and that's essentially what John Means is right now, and I just, I just don't agree with it. 
Yeah, I, I don't agree with it either, and especially, you know, Tanner Scott has been pitching a lot, and Brandon Hyde keeps pitching him these fifth or sixth inning situations, almost in mop-up role last night. You know, the Orioles were down a run when he came in, and, you know, to, to pitch in that situation just doesn't really make sense to me. I see Tanner Scott as a more late innings guy, and he's being taxed in these middle innings because Brandon Hyde's not letting his starters go long enough. So the Orioles really need to figure out something to do with John Means if they're not going to let him pitch. It just doesn't make sense to me to keep running him out here as an opener, like you said. So, you know, that that needs to be changed now. Well, and speaking of not letting him pitch, Keegan Aiken, he got called up. He threw three innings in his Major League debut. He pitched well. He got um, – the reliever came in after him, I believe it was Sulcer, or maybe it was Cody Carroll. I think it was Cody, Cody Carroll. Um Gave up, let the inherited runner score, so it made his line look, it made Aiken's line look a lot worse. He's thrown three in the third innings. His last outing was a third of an inning, threw three pitches, got the guy out. And then he's back down at the alternate training site. But you, and I agree with you here, you have an issue with how they are using Keegan Aiken and what they're doing with his career. And it reminds you of Kevin Gossman. Yeah, I'm going to go back to 2014 for this sounding off episode, and I want to talk about the 2014 Orioles in which Kevin Gaussman was optioned six times during that season and then recalled each time a few days later. Now, I know the Orioles were trying to compete back in 2014, and they did. They, they won the division that year, but I, I really do think that that handles and the way they handled Kevin Gaussman truly ruined Kevin Gaussman. He was never the ace that the Orioles promised or that any any of the scouts promised. And, I, and I'm worried the same thing will happen to Keegan Aiken. Obviously, Keegan Aiken isn't the same level of prospect that Kevin Gaussman was. But you can't screw with a guy over and over by sending him up and down and up and down and not letting them get the opportunity they deserve. And right now, it's not like the Orioles have a wealth of great starting pitching or even the, a, a, a fantastic bullpen with long relievers to go with. They don't have those guys. You know, a Jorge Lopez is definitely not going to be pitching better than Keegan Aiken. To not give a guy a chance who's already 25 years old, he's been at every level, Just it doesn't really make sense to me. And they're going to keep in limbo with Aiken over and over, and you don't want to ruin him like you did Gaussman. Six times to option Gaussman in 2014, I'm still convinced that ruined him, and I don't want to see the same thing happen with Aiken. Well, certainly not. And the Orioles' future hinges on the younger starters coming up through the through the system. Aiken, he may be a bullpen guy, but I agree. See what he has right now. Why not? You know what I mean? In, in a season like this one in particular, a season like we've never seen before. You know, it, it, he's not Grayson Rodriguez. He's not D.L. Hall. We don't need to see those guys at the big league level this year. But Keegan Aiken, he had the sixth best ERA in the International League last year. Uh, he, and, and that was with working on, pit, on pitches that he wasn't comfortable throwing, so he got batted around a little bit. Big-time strikeout guy, former organizational pitcher of the year, it's time to give him a shot. Uh, with that in mind, we do have Stan the Fan, Charles, on the line. Stan, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? We're doing pretty well. Thanks for joining us again on the Bat Around today. How do, how do you feel um, about the Orioles' handling of Keegan Aiken so far? Uh, listen, I understand what – and who's co-hosting with you today? I apologize. I uh, should know that. This is uh, Zach Goodman. He's actually now the permanent co-host. He's been doing a great hey, job. Zach, so we how are you? I'm good, Stan. How are you? Good, Zach. I understand what you're talking about when you mentioned Gosman being sent down and up six times. But it, it's not, the, it's not the, the act of sending somebody up or down. It's what they've done to warrant being brought up. 
And if you look closely at both Dylan Bundy and Kevin Gosman in their Oriole history, and I've written about this extensively, many columns about it, it's that the ball club never forced them to develop and prove what the advancement that they had made. They just said, we need Kevin Gosman to be our number two starter behind Chris Tillman, so we're going to bring him up. And then when he didn't perform well, they'd say, well, we got can't pitch him again in the major leagues, got to put him down. They never forced Kevin Gosman one time in his minor league career to go down, start six or eight games in a row, and come back with a 2.8 ERA. They, they just said, well, we need a starter. Let's plug Kevin Gosman in. There was no rhyme or reason to his development as a major league pitcher. Um, now, how that factors in with Keegan Aiken, uh, I don't know. I clearly think that they, they feel that Aiken is a potentially valuable piece, but I don't think they view him as a, uh, a, a starting rotation piece long-term. That's how I see it right now. Right, and I, I think that they view him as a bullpen arm. I think that we can all agree on that. Um, but the way I look at it, look at it is he's going to get he, – he's probably ready to be in the big leagues right now. He has a full season at each level under his belt. And this is the time for me that, where I want to see what he can do at the major league level because you can only do so much down at Bowie playing intra-squad games. Yeah, I agree. So, I agree. And so, you, so to answer your question, I, I was somewhat shocked they brought him up to pitch a third of an inning and then sent him back down. Uh, I, I would be wanting to see Keegan Aiken at the major league level at this point. Yeah, bringing up a guy to throw two pitches and get one out and then sending him down the next day just doesn't really make too much sense to me. You know, I, especially especially right now with uh, you know the fact that LeBlanc is going to be out you know for the rest of the season and most likely won't pitch for the Orioles again. Um, this is a perfect season, even if you wanted to use Aiken as kind of an opener in front of Eshelman or something like that, uh, to, to have him up here and gaining some, gaining some innings and experience at the major league level. I do not see a problem in that at all, and I'm a little mystified by it myself. Well, and I like that you brought up Tom Eshelman because Tom Eshelman has done everything in his power to earn a starting nod in that rotation. He's 2-0. He's got a 2.75 ERA. He was a dog the other night against uh, against Tampa Bay. Uh, I'm sorry. What, what what game was that? Against Boston. Against Boston after Pilar homered, and then Le- LeBlanc had to leave in the first inning with the injury. Right. He retired. And, he walked a batter and then retired 13 in a row. Absolutely. His, his whip yeah. on the year is .76. So Eshelman's yeah. done his part to earn the spot. So if he's the starter... He certainly earned it. We're not. We're not simply saying you know give Keegan Aiken the job because he's Keegan Aiken, but, well, he, but he should be but, pitching but again, in the mix. I didn't say he deserves to start over Eshelman. Right. I mean, let, let's be honest. Eshelman is a very uh, look. I love the guy. He reminds me. You guys are too young. Uh, he reminds me an awful lot of like a Rick Russell okay. from back in the in the late seventies into the eighties. Uh, he just is soft, softer, softest. He keeps the batters off balance. I like Eshelman, but if you see Eshelman more than twice in a game, you're probably going to tee off on him. 
So what I like is putting somebody in front of Eshelman to open the game, especially maybe like an Aiken, because maybe you'll have more right-handed hitters in the lineup against Aiken, and then you take Aiken out after two innings, and you got a predominantly right-handed lineup. To me, that makes the most sense how I'd use Eshelman. But they, but uh, but Brandon Hyde has seen, seems to not like the opener concept. That's not his thing. Yeah, I'm with Brandon Hyde on that. I'm not a big fan of the opener either. But yeah. if you're going to do, I, it with I am when you have the level of starting pitching that the Orioles have. Look, Tommy Malone had a terrific uh, whip last year with the Seattle Mariners. He pitched in 23 games with the Mariners last year. Four of them were starts. Nineteen of them were coming in as the second guy, pitching three and two-thirds, four and a third. Um, I, I mean, to me, certain pitchers, if you have, if you're going to fill your, your, your roster with Wade LeBlanc and Tommy Malone and think you're going to get five and two-thirds or six and a third, I think you're making, you're making a big mistake. Stan, as far as Eshelman goes, I want to talk about his career in the minors because he did make a lot of starts uh, before yeah. coming over to the Orioles. But do you think the mindset is kind of different, What you know, starting a game in the majors versus coming in after LeBlanc leaves from one out? Uh, I think there's I, – I, I actually think there's something to the fact that you – I think a starting pitcher can and – and I've used this – I mean, I know I'm stuttering around here. My big example of that was Arthur Rhodes. Arthur Rhodes ended up with a brilliant 16, 17-year career in the major leagues as what? A relief pitcher. Well, there was a time back when the Orioles were bringing him up. He was every bit D.L. Hall, Grayson Rodriguez. He was it. He was the new thing that the Orioles have. And I watched him, and... I said, this guy's, this guy's a relief pitcher. And I used to argue with the assistant general manager of the Orioles, uh, Kevin Malone. And he goes, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. He's a starter. He's got starter stuff. Well, you have to show me the most important thing a starter has to have is the ability to every fifth day go out there and give your team a chance to win. And there's a certain level, and don't ask me to quantify it and tell you what exactly it is, but there's certain routine a starting pitcher has to make use of the four days in between his starts, and on the fifth day, he's sharp. And I think Arthur Rhodes was like a deer in the headlight every time they put him out to start a game. It was like, oh, what do I do now? And I I see the same thing a lot with Kevin Gosman. Um, so to answer your question about Eshelman, I think there's something to the fact that you can overthink and overprepare and overworry over four days for the day that you have to be on. That's vastly different than just being like, boom, you got to come in the game now. No time to think, no time to worry. You just have to be there. And I always maintain that what made Arthur Rhodes a great pitcher is his, his the fact that he didn't have the knowledge when he came to the ballpark whether he was going to pitch or not. So he had to be on a different type of edge night in and night out. And I think um, 
I think that played into Eshelman's success the other day. I, I love that you brought up Arthur Rhodes. I was a big Arthur Rhodes fan growing up. He won 19 games out of that Orioles bullpen in 96 and 97. He was as big a part of that successful Orioles team as any other pitcher in that rotation or in that bullpen. Now, talking about this Orioles team, start, yeah. started the season 12-8. and eight. They've lost 9 of 11 since then to be at 14 and 17 right now. You know, that we, we talked at the beginning of the show about how they continue to pitch to Gritchick, and you had an interesting take on that when I was talking with you last night, Stan. What are your thoughts on the Orioles continuing to pitch to Gritchick, who has just been beating them single-handedly all season? Well, uh, listen, I'm, I'm very respectful when I, when I ask questions of a Buck Showalter or Brandon Hyde, and I, I didn't mean to throw a stark comparison to somebody that's managed over 20 years in the big leagues versus a guy who's in his second year in the big leagues. I, I respect Brandon. I know he knows the game, but I think you can get pretty personal and pretty stubborn about certain matchups. And I learned something because I used to gamble a lot on sports and somebody that was uh, on the bookmaking side of things taught me a lesson about 45 years ago about how most people love to bet on the do theory. And the do theory is sort of like if a team has lost eight games in a row, well, I'm going to bet them today because they're due to win a game. Right. And this guy convinced me that the bookmakers love that type of thinking because the real way to think about it is if the team's lost eight games in a row, they're a great bet that they're going to lose their ninth game in a row. And I, I took that that bit of knowledge and I've used it over my years and I think Brandon Hyde is pitching to Gritchick almost like in a separate universe where he thinks this guy's not that great a hitter he's only a 255 lifetime hitter or whatever Gritchick's lifetime batting average is and we're just going to get him out okay and I found last night it, it almost unthinkable that you would pitch to a guy who in, in in 17 games, hold on, I just want to get these stats right. In, in his games last year against the Orioles, he was, hold on, I'm, I'm, I added this. Last year he was 9 for 19. No, last year he was 17 for 53 with 700. I've got my numbers all screwed up. Hold on a second. In 34 games versus the Orioles, Gritchick has hit 17 home runs. Four home runs in three-game series in Baltimore this year. 33 extra base hits in 34 games versus the Orioles. And in four games in 2020, he's 9 for 19 with five home runs and 13 RBIs. He's hitting a combined for the two seasons. I apologize. I stumbled over I wrote those stats in an idiotic way. That's he's all right. 26 for 72, 361 average with, as we said, 12 home runs and 28 RBIs. I mean, it's, it's just unthinkable to me that you would pitch to this guy with a base open like that. I used to I used to say the same thing about Mookie Betts in 2016 and Aaron Judge in 2017. You can't let these guys beat you. You know, and, and the, the the situation dictates 
what you're going to do. But with I mean, let me just interrupt you. It's it's almost crazy to compare Gritchick to Judge. Oh, it is Beck. crazy. But 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 it is. But it's true when his numbers against your team, your pitching staff, are what they are. You know. Yeah, I, I want to I want to bring up Glaber Torres for a minute because last yeah. year Glaber Torres hit a slash line of two sixty one, three twenty six, four twenty against every team that isn't the Orioles, and he right. had three ninety four, four sixty seven, one thousand forty five slash line against the Orioles, and at fifteen twelve OPS, just unbelievable numbers. And now Glaber Torres is not playing the Orioles as much. He's not in the AL East as much. He's playing more NL East teams as well, and he's really struggled. So, you know, and maybe it's just something with this Orioles pitching. Well, the Orioles, look, they have to realize what they are as a pitching staff. You know, I mean, listen, again, I respect Brandon. Brandon goes, I love I love the matchup of Solzer versus Grichik. Uh Guerrero is hitting right-handed pitching far better than, but pr- let let Guerrero prove that that he's going to beat you against. And Cole Solzer is, and I like Cole Solzer, and I I hope they continue to use him as a closer. But I like I like him not the way I like Mariano Rivera. I mean, when you right. say I like I like Solzer going after Gritchick, why? You know, why do you like him against that? I mean, I I just don't know. I think Brandon, in his own mind, has gotten pissed off at Gritchick. You know what I mean? I think it can become personal. And I'll tell you another anecdote. It's a great story. A friend of mine, Mike Rosen is his name, and Mike is probably about 75, 77 years old now. He's an amateur umpire, or he was for a number of years. And he told me a story one day that he umpired a game a uh, high school game uh, with Mark Teixeira was playing for one of the two teams. It was in New Jersey. And Teixeira had hit three home runs in this game already. And he went to the mound because the manager came out to the mound, the coach came out to the mound, and he came up for a fourth time. And the manager said, you're going to get this guy out. And there was a base open. Uh, there was a base open. And he said, you're going to get the, you're going to pitch to this guy. You're going to get him out. And he's an umpire, so he can't chuckle or anything. But he said to himself, he said, what is this guy thinking? And sure enough, he hit off a three-run homer to win the game. And his fourth home run of the day. I mean, there's certain times you just have to tip your cap to a certain guy and not let him, as, as you said, not let him beat you, you know. Well, this isn't Rick the Wild Thing Vaughn in Major League going out there and striking out a guy to win the pennant. This, this, this isn't a movie. This is real life. And you know, some people say if you want to get, if you want to beat Randall Gritchick, throw a good pitch, make better pitches, get him out. Sometimes it doesn't matter what pitch you throw. A dude's locked in. He's locked in. And I, I, I'm with, with you, Stan. It's In that situation, you can't let him beat you. I'd rather put him on and take my chances with Guerrero. If Guerrero gets the game-winning hit, okay, that's fine. You, you take your lashings there. But I, I, I just really don't think that you can continue to let a guy like Randall Gritchick beat you. The, Randall Gritchick is 4-0 against the Orioles, not the Blue Jays. Right. Well, you know, the other night it was interesting. The game against uh, 
the game against the Red Sox, where Sulzer uh, all of a sudden inexplicably lost uh, lost the plate, couldn't throw a ball over the plate. Remember what started that? He had retired somebody, and then J.D. Martinez came up, and the Orioles were ahead in the game, I believe, and he fell behind J.D. Martinez 3-0. and And I didn't make this up. Ben McDonald and Garceau both were saying, well, it looks like he wants no parts of Martinez. And then he came back and threw two strikes to go back to 3-2 and on Martinez. And then he walked Martinez. And then he walked the next two batters. Uh, and they ended up bringing in Castro uh, to finish that inning. And I said after the game, was it was kind of obvious that you were pitching around Martinez. He goes, no, we weren't pitching around Martinez. And I was, why wouldn't you be pitching around Martinez? You know, it just struck me as an odd decision there that that that's the one guy in that lineup I'm not going to let beat me right now because that lineup is not anywhere near what it's been, you know. Yeah, you bring that up, and I remember um, Alex Cobb, after his last start, you asked him a question on the postgame show. You asked him about pitching around guys, and he and I was very interested that to was, see that, that was it. He, he, he said, well, I don't know that we were pitching around him, and then I asked Hyde the same question when he came in, and uh, I've got the game right here. It was the game Ashelman won. Right. They, he walked. No, it's not. Hold on up. <laughs> well, uh, I, really, believe, I believe here, they it's lost the night, that game. It's the night before. Castro was the winning pitcher. It was last Saturday night. He he. They, they started the 10th inning with a guy on second base who eventually scored. They struck out Devers. Then he walked Martinez after coming back to 3-0 to 3-2. And then he, he walked Bogarts and Moreland on six pitches, I mean uh, eight pitches. Mm-hmm. He was three and zero. So, I, my what I was maintaining was that when he when you int- ask a pitcher to intentionally walk somebody or pitch around them, I think that's really foolish. I think what you should do is just wave four fingers and get them to first base. They wouldn't even admit that they were pitching around Martinez. So, I I, I agree with you. If you're going to pitch around him. Um, you might as well I don't just, want my just, pitchers trying to be trying to be too fine, but throw, but in in his mind he's saying I want to throw a ball. I want him to either go after a hitter or just if you made that determination and the base is open at first base, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the the really good dangerous hitter and put him on. And it was the same situation last night with. Um, with Grichik, and they they maintain they weren't pitching, you know, they weren't going to pitch around him either. And I think it's a, a stubborn streak of Brandon Hyde. Well, I think you'd be hard pressed to get uh, a pitcher, a major league pitcher, to admit they were pitching around somebody because they want to be competitive and they want to keep that competitive edge. So, it, yeah. while, while yeah. I was interested to hear Cobb say that he's never been told to pitch around somebody, I also don't know that he would divulge that information even if he had it. Um, now, and we're speaking about is Cobb. Such a de- is that such a deep, dark secret that you've been told to pitch around somebody? I, I, Probably yeah, it sounds not. Like it sounds like they're talking about it like it's a government secret, you know, <laughs> on 
on a plan to assassinate a, a head of state or something. Like I think that. it's just about keeping that competitive edge and not letting somebody think that they own you. But, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're talking about um, Alex Cobb, and we have the trade deadline coming up in a couple of days, Stan. And Alex Cobb's pitching to a 373 ERA below his career ERA. Um, right. He, Tommy Malone, uh, and, and Michael Givens, I think, are the three Orioles players that are most likely to be traded. Um, where would you put that? Do you think the Orioles make a move? I, I don't think, think they're going to be buyers. Or, I think Givens is, is you know, gone. I, and I think that's one of the reasons. I had somebody last night text me after the game. Why wouldn't you have Givens ready? I don't understand why you wouldn't have Givens ready to pitch to Gritchick. And listen, Givens has had a, a, a very, very good year. But he's capable, like he did the other night. Who did he give up the home run to? Uh, Martin Perez in yeah. Tampa. Yeah, he's he's quite capable of giving up a home run. I don't think they wanted to to have other teams see him do that right now. Give up a big home run in a situation, and you certainly don't want to get him hurt. So I think I don't think you'll see Givens. In my opinion, I don't think you'll see him pitch again for the Orioles. I think he's gone. Cobb is a little more complicated. There are a couple teams, in my opinion, including the Yankees or, or Atlanta, that could use him. Uh, but he's got that $15 million um, uh, option for next year. I forget if it's a club option. I think it's a, I think it's a club option. Uh, but I, I think it's a little bit more complicated, and he's not showing to be a difference maker. He's pitching better than he has in his previous two seasons for the Orioles. Um, but I don't know what you're going to get for him. To me, Malone does not have – I've heard a lot of people saying that Malone is somebody everybody's going to be – I don't see him being that attractive to a contender. Yeah, uh, That's my, my opinion. I don't think that it's an option with Cobb. I think it's just the fourth year of his deal. It's just the fourth year of the deal, yeah. Yeah. So, so Cobb is unless they trade him, he's on the team next year. M- Malone, I, I I tend to agree with you there, Stan. I think that Tommy Malone has pitched over his head so far this year. I think he's been very good, uh, considering yeah. what you got, uh, what, what considering the contract that you signed him to. I believe it was a minor league deal. I think he's been better than anybody could have expected. But I don't think that other teams view him as a difference maker at the deadline. Right. I mean, again, he could be somebody that could come in. I want to see his contract status on signed through 2021, four years. I thought I had read something different. Okay. Uh, that, that's a lot of money for Alex Cobb next year, you know, $15 million, nearly $15 million. So, uh, you know, I think the Orioles would probably have to kick in some money like five or six million dollars, and I don't know that they've got it right now to kick in to get a really meaningful prospect for Alex Cobb. I think they'd have to eat some of that money. Yeah, Jose Iglesias actually has a team option for 2021, so maybe that's uh, what you're thinking of there. But, yeah, it, the Orioles are going to definitely have to find a way to pay off that contract. Uh, Stan, do you think the return for Alex Cobb uh, or, or Michael Givens as well, would be pitching or middle infield, which are the two most depleted parts of the Orioles system? I think they'd be looking for pitching. Uh, I think in either case, they're probably going to go younger. You know, in other words, they're not looking to get a team's, you know, fourth or fifth best prospect 
I think they're looking at somebody that might be like an A-ball to get a better quality of prospect. Um, I, I wouldn't narrow it down I, you know, as to what, uh, because I don't think that player is going to help the team immediately. And Stan, one, one last question before we let yeah. you go. Um, and there was so much more that we wanted to get to today, but we're running out of time. We have other guests that we have to get sure. to. So, um, Pedro Severino, he's having a good year. It wasn't a great game last night, but obviously he's just shaking off some of the rush from missing the last few games with that soft tissue injury. Um, I think that Pedro Severino is a starting catcher in the major leagues, no matter what team he plays on. I think that the Orioles want to see what they have in San Francisco more. I think they like Brian Holiday. Do you, what do you put the odds at with the, for them trading Severino this year or maybe in the offseason? Because I don't think that once Rutschman gets here that, that Severino is going to be cool with taking a uh, backup role. Um, I wouldn't be so quick. You know, I wouldn't be so quick uh, to, to be trading Severino right now. I, do, I don't think anybody's going to give you anything that's really that great right now for him, although it's... He's certainly increasing his value, but he's under team control. He's not a particularly expensive player. I think Hyde, I love the fact that he likes to to DH a, a good hitter and not worry about it, and that's what Holiday provides him as a third catcher, is if you DH one catcher, you don't run the risk of uh, running out of catchers where your DH has to, you know, your pitcher starts to hit again. Um, if you have to put the the catcher, the second catcher, into the game, um, I, I I personally like what we have right now catching, and right, I think you can get around. Uh, you know, we really don't know. It's really hard to measure what Rutschman, how close he is, because of the close nature of what the season is like. So. I wouldn't be rushing to get rid of the Severino. Certainly, and you certainly don't want to rob Peter the PayPal, and I, and I get that. You, you don't want to trade somebody when you have an unknown, even if it is a guy like Adley Rutschman, who's touted as maybe the best catching prospect since Johnny Bench. You still don't know what you have in him because you haven't seen him at the major league level. So right, and what's the and what suppose I'm just I'm talking hypothetically here, and I won't go into great length. Suppose Adley Rutschman. Uh, has Tommy John surgery the way Matt Wieters does. That's a good point. Well, and then you've traded Severino, and all you got is Chance Cisco. I'd rather see, let a couple years develop and see maybe Rutschman plays some first base. You know, 40 games at first base that gives you 80 games to catch Severino. 40 that, that Rutschman's at first, and the 30 that you don't want him playing. You know, I mean, I think there's ways to get around the surplus there using first base right now. You know, again, because the club um, doesn't show any proclivity to sign Trey Mancini to a long-term contract. Yeah, well, I'll say this, Dan. You know, depth in the catcher position is always good to have because they don't last for a super long time. I love it. I love the fact that we got And Earl Weaver is smiling in his grave that they finally have a left-handed hitting catcher that can can hit some home runs because that's what he was always looking for was that backup catcher that could hit 17, 18 home runs in the 40 games that he played. 
Yeah, it's always good to see Adley Rutschman, too, maybe take some reps at first base, like you said. You know, the, the Giants did that Just with Buster. in the lineup. Buster po- right, and Buster Posey did that with the Giants, and then Yadier Molina's done that with the Cardinals, and it's kept them in the majors for a long time. So yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's definitely something to explore. Hey, Stan. Hey, guys, thank, thank you. Thank, thank you for, you for having show. a great conversation. You're doing a good job. Absolutely. Hey, uh, real quick, Stan, do you know who your guest is on Monday? Yes, we just got Ken Singleton. I just oh. found out a half hour ago. All right, fantastic. So we've got Thank Ken Singleton, and then we've got the um, athletic director, Mr. Barrio, of the um, of UMBC Retrievers, talking a little bit about the college game. All right, excellent, Sam. Thanks again for joining the show. We'll talk to you next week. All right, talk to you soon. Take care. Once again, that was Stan the Fan Charles joining us on the show that he founded and created, The Bat Around here at Press Box Sports. Uh, if you're missing your Stan the Fan fix, you can get it twice a week on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash pressboxsports. Every Monday night, Stan and former Orioles pitcher Ross Grimsley talk baseball, and every Wednesday night, Stan and Gary Stein talk to a newsmaker in the sports world. This week, Stan and Ross caught up with legendary former Orioles catcher Rick Dempsey, while Stan and Gary chatted with former Maryland Stadium Authority Chairman John Moog. Find both shows via the videos tab at facebook.com slash pressboxsports or at pressboxonline.com. And coming up this Monday night, you won't want to miss it as Stan and Ross are joined by the one and only Ken Singleton. That's Stan and Ross with Ken Singleton at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports or PressBoxOnline.com. Got to get a break. When we come back, we will have the Baltimore Suns' own John Mioli. Baltimore's favorite bar, Sliders Bar and Grill, is now open. Just across the street from Camden Yards, Sliders is open, and they've added new menu items, new frozen cocktails, and new 32-ounce beers. If you're not ready to go out just yet, you can still order from Sliders' carryout menu, and they still have liter bottles of hand sanitizer available for just $15. Call 443-835-0906 or 410-547-8891 or visit slidersbaltimore.com. We'll see you this summer at Sliders. If it's happening in Baltimore sports and beyond, it's happening on Glenn Clark Radio. New Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. Appreciate so. Trey Mancini. Thanks for having me on, guys. Glad to be back on. Ravens linebacker Matt Judon. Appreciate y'all. How y'all doing? Ravens kicker Justin Tucker. Thanks for having me. Adley Rutschman. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Coach Mark Turgeon. How you guys doing? Heston Kerstad. Thanks for having me. Joe Burrow. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Marlon Humphrey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coach Mike Loxley. Thanks for having me on. He is J.K. Dobbins. Thank Thank you for having me. I had a great time. The great Ray Lewis. Always good to be home. Dickie V, Dick Vitale. Glenn and Kyle, two diaper dandy. What's up, fellas? Hey, what's going on, Ed? Glenn and Kyle are live Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon, and archived anytime. Watch Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and listen to PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. For more than 40 years, K&S Automotive has been repairing, restoring, and maintaining foreign and domestic vehicles with a focus on exceptional workmanship and customer service. Everything from oil changes to major bodywork. Call K&S now at 410-235-6600 or go to knsimports.com. That's K&S at knsimports.com. Ahoy, mateys. It's Royal Farms Chicken Palooza 3. About of Royal Farms Chicken Delights. Chicken Delights, Chicken Delights. Get a two-piece chicken box with a portion of each sale benefiting the Johns Hopkins Children's Center or the all-new, hand-breaded, crispy on the outside, tender on the inside, world-famous chicken sandwich, the Royal for just five bucks. Just five bucks. 
Quiet Birdie. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. Glory Days Grill's summer seasonal menu is now available for dine-in, dine-out on the patio, or to-go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new knockout shrimp or the delicious lobster roll with grilled corn made with real Maine lobster. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and stay positive during this challenging time in our community. All right, welcome back to the Bat Around with Paul Valley and new permanent co-host Zach Goodman. And we have on the line right now from the Baltimore Sun Orioles beat writer John Mioli. John, how are you today, man? Oh. Sorry, John, I hit the wrong button. How are you today, man? I'm doing well. How are you over there? We're doing pretty well, doing pretty well. I'm going to do something that Craig Heist does. I'm going to mute the music right now. For some reason, no matter how low I turn the volume on, whenever I have a guest on the phone, you can just hear that music blaring. So sorry about that, John. Uh, thanks for joining the show today. I know I got you on here with short notice. How are things going over in your world today? They're pretty well, you know. It's always a little bit easier during the days, at least when the Orioles are on the road. You just wait for, for the Zooms to start. So what is that like exactly? Since you're you're clearly not traveling with the team, does it make your job easier or more difficult? Um, it's it's a little it's a little more difficult, but not for any meaningful reason. You know, it's just hard to it's hard to you know write and concentrate as you're listening to the broadcast while you're watching the game. There's no real way to have just the raw audio feed of like looking up when a bat hits a ball or somebody makes a play like you would when you're normally at the game. It's usually a little of a work environment, but right. otherwise, you know, the hardest part is just not being able to talk to players and get to know them and hear their stories and, and find cool things to write about. That's really the hardest part. Well, I'm sure, and hopefully that'll get back to normal for you guys next season. Um, now, the Orioles, they took a tough loss last night, losing 5-4 to four in extra innings on the walk-off two-run homer by Randall Gritchick. Was there any talk, John, amongst the media, amongst the players, amongst the team about not pitching to Gritchick? We've been harping on this all day, about not letting that guy consistently beat you day in and day out. Yeah, it, it seems like Brandon Hyde was asked about that after the game last night, and he basically said that they like the matchup there with, with Cole Seltzer against him, and you also have to worry about Black Burrow Jr. hitting behind them. You're not really going to put the winning run on in a situation like that. Uh, you, you know, if when 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 Clover Torres and all these Yankees guys were were killing the Orioles last year, Brandon Hyde got asked about these types of things a lot, and he basically said, you know, we could just make a pitch. We don't have to we don't have to leave the ball over the plate for these guys who are going to hit mistakes out of the park. And I think that's where it comes down to that. You know, Grishas just hit pitches that he shouldn't be getting, and maybe they're maybe the Orioles pitchers are trying to be a little too fine because because of what he's done to the team so far this year, and and they're making bad pitches as a result of it. But at the end of the day, they're not making the pitches that they're trying to make, so it's hard for a manager to be like, oh, I can't pitch this guy at all just because this guy can't execute in this stuff. Right, and it certainly is a pick-your-poison situation there last night because, look, it's, it's either you pitch to Gritchick, who's been killing you all year, or you pitch to, to Vlad Jr., who kills everybody. You know, uh, So who do you really want to pitch to there? I don't like uh, an outer third, you know, mid-thigh-high fastball to Gritchick. I don't like that to most players, especially when you're already behind an account 1-0, and they're kind of sitting on the fastball because they know that you don't want to 
fall behind them. I, I just I feel like the pitch location has to be better, and I feel like that if they are going to pitch to a guy like Gritchick, who's just been on fire the last couple of weeks, that you really can't give him anything too high up in the zone. Everything's got to be low. Yeah, and it's possible too that you know they were trying to pitch around him, and and it was just a mistake to cut a little bit too much of the plate. It's hard to really say unless you're the guy throwing the pitches, or the guy calling the pitches, or the guy making the making the you know the calls in the dugout. But Brandon Hyde's not going to be hasn't shown himself to be the one to really throw anyone under the bus and say, oh, you know, he was supposed to put that pitch there and, and didn't. He he he's, he hasn't been that type of guy since Oriole fired him. Yeah, John, I want to ask about Cole Saucer. What kind of convinced Brandon Hyde to immediately make him the de facto closer? It's hard to really say. Um, honestly, it seems like it just kind of happened by by chance at the beginning. I do think that I do think that last year when things were even as they're not having a ton of you know, regular save opportunities, they didn't really want to have Michael Givens as the closer closer. They wanted to use him against the best right-handers that the team had, even if that came up in the 7th inning, 8th inning, they wanted to use him there. I think when there's left-handers coming up, they use Richard Blyer in those situations a lot, and then those would be the big parts, and then the ninth inning when things got a little tense was when, when no one could really do the job. So I think they kind of worked, not necessarily worked backwards and say, okay, he's got the ninth, he's got the eighth, he's got the seventh. I think they kind of worked forwards. You know, I don't even know if that makes sense to say, but they worked forwards and they're saying, "All right, if we've got these righties coming up in the in the in the fifth inning, then we want to get somebody like Castro just come in here and, and you know just pump fastballs and get them out. And then when they come back around in the eighth, we'll have Gibbons. And then in between the seventh, you can have a Tanner Scott or a Paul Fry or somebody else. And then the guy who was just left there for the ninth inning was Solzer and he can get righties and lefties out. Sometimes he struggles a little bit to keep it in the strike zone, but I think the fact that he can face both sides and 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 at least in his career doesn't have a propensity of walking people this year, he certainly, certainly has shown a little bit of that. I think that's probably where some of that came from. Well, and also ominous by his absence last night was Michael Givens. Now, we just had Stan the Fan Charles on the show a few minutes ago, and he th- seems to think that Givens didn't pitch because he's on the trading block and the Orioles weren't trying to overexpose him in case he was ineffective. What are you hearing about the trade deadline? I know that the Orioles aren't going to be buyers. Are we expecting them to be sellers, and who do you think is going to go? Well, I, I think that they're, I think they're going to be... Uh, I guess sellers is the word. I was trying to think of a word in between. Like, you know, they're going to be shoppers. Not the people who are doing the shopping, but the people who are shopping things to other teams. They're going to make sure everybody knows if they want a reliever. If they need a reliever, that Michael Givens is only making like, you know, $400,000, dollars the rest of the year. He's club controlled next year, and you can have him for the low, low price of a player to be named later. You know, Alex Cobb <laughs> is somebody who can help a major league rotation and be a you know, probably a legitimate part of a team that wants to get over the hump and, and the playoffs, but but it's expensive, and he's going to make sure that they know that maybe the Orioles will take some money, maybe the return won't be as high for an established guy as you think. So I think that Mike Elias is going to be calling people. He has been, um, and he still will continue to call people and tell them, hey, these guys are available if you want them. I'm interested to see what the market is and who wants 
to, to make big moves like this. You know, in the American League especially, there's really not a huge playoff bubble. The teams who are in the playoffs are going to be in the playoffs at this point unless somebody collapses. And giving up something to, to add payroll and, and to diminish your own prospect base in a year where there's only five rounds of a draft, just to make a little bit of a of an improvement to your team in a year where the playoffs are different, anyways, you don't need five starters in the playoffs. You need right. three. So, so you, you need the relievers. That's always teams are always going to need those. But, but it's going to come down to whether you know their valuations are met. And there's been times in the past, in the last year with Michael Elias, where they haven't been. He didn't trade people. I mean, he didn't force himself to do that just because the expectation from people like us was that they were going to move the players. Well, and Zach just actually shared a tweet with me right before you came on the show today. I think, is it Mark Feinzen or John Feinzen? It's Mark. Mark Feinzen sent out a tweet saying that the White Sox and Athletics are actively looking for starting pitching and the Padres are also in the mix. With the Orioles get being willing to possibly get rid of a guy like Tommy Malone or Alex Cobb, Alex Cobb I think would be more of a salary dump. I think that they'd be more willing to move him um, for less just to get rid of the salary. Do you think teams like those are calling on the Orioles right now to take a look at a Malone or a Cobb? And is this something you th- you see as likely as happening, as likely to happen in the next couple of days? I, I would assume that those, those conversations are happening. You, when, you, when you think about the A's, the idea of them committing to paying you know $15 million to Alex Cobb next year seems a little bit far-fetched, even if the Orioles are willing to eat a lot of that money. Um, you know, the White Sox are a team, I don't believe they're very hard up for cash right now. It's a very young team that's, that, uh, that that they've got going there, and Alex Cobb might be the type of person who can be a veteran in that rotation with all those young guys to really help bring that along the way. The Orioles kind of hoped he would be here, and to some extent that he has been. I think those are all pretty interesting options those are all teams also i think it's important to note that with the white Sox and the and the padres those teams are just flush with with young talent they could peel off a a 19 or 20 year old who had a good year in rookie ball or or is coming to the united states from one of their international programs and peel off a couple of those as player to be named later and November and not feel the hit, whereas that would make a huge difference to the Orioles. And I think that's something that, that Michael Elias, adding those types of players, is going to be a lot more inclined to do than, than to hold on to these veteran guys. Yeah, we, we know about the salary complications as far as trading Cobb goes. Do you think that the Orioles could take on a salary of another you know veteran sort of player in his, in his mid to late 30s that will kind of offset these salary complications but better the return for the Orioles? Possibly, I haven't really thought about that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that if if they were going to, it's it's almost like a devil you know type thing. If they're going to be paying a player X amount of money in, in these circumstances, they know, they might not know about another team's you know high price contract player and what he brings and what kind of guy he is in the clubhouse and and who you know how he works and how he operates. But they know those things about Alex Cobb. They know they know what kind of player he is. They know what he means to the people around him and how he helps them. So I think that could possibly be something on a case by case basis. And they're going to re- evaluate all these returns on their on, on their merits. Um, those are just a few factors that could go into it. But the idea of this team taking on salary and, and paying more money 
to to two major league players at this point is is, is a harder one to see. Um, I, I, I feel like it's it'd be more likely that they just say, you know what, you don't have to give us a player that you're paying a lot back. We'll just pay a lot of Alex Cobb's salary and be able to facilitate it that way. John, what are the Orioles looking for in a return if they do make a move and trade a player? Are they looking for more starting pitching and looking for relief help? Or are they looking for middle infielders where they are kind of barren in the system right now? Yeah, I think you could probably cross relief. You know, in, in most circumstances, relievers off off the board. I think that they'll probably be trying to find starters who, if they don't work out as starters, they could become relievers, obviously, of somebody like Isaac Matson and the Dylan Bundy trade who's a little bit of an exception to that, but they also got three starting pitchers in that trade that they, that they like a lot. Um, I think it's going to be you know young pitching, the kind of the pitchers that have the 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 metrics and and uh, you know all the analytics supported characteristics that they like. And I do think infielders are something that they that they're going to need. I'm interested to see how 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 they view their own infield needs given some of the college infielders they took this year. Uh, Jordan Westberg and Anthony Anthony Servideo to kind of take on you know pretty big roles as this organization is going forward in terms of being the infielders of the future. They basically only have Adam Hall in that role, and that's it. So if they could get somebody who's you know an up the middle player who can do everything the way they want in these trades, and I'm sure they, I'm sure they do it. That said, I'm not sure what they're going to be trading is going to be the thing that can get that type of thing player back. And last question I'll ask you as far as the trade deadline is concerned. Speaking of up the middle, Jose Iglesias returned to action last night, had two more hits. His batting average is up to 400 on the year. Uh, is the sample size too small to expect the Orioles to have a market for him, or is that somebody who we could see traded because he's one of the better defenders in baseball at the position and he's been swinging a hot bat all year? He only, he only has a couple of days to really showcase his talents from here. Yeah, yeah, you'd think that this is an important time. I'm not sure if I was another team that that trading for somebody who's making real money. I think he's making, you know, basically pro-rated. He's making like a million dollars this year. He's got a decent amount of that less still. I'm not sure if I'm another team that I'm willing to give up much significant, you know, for somebody who's won, you know, ground ball that needs to be legged out in the infield away from, from maybe not playing again this year. You know, with those hamstring injuries and those and those quad issues, that's what we're, you're really dealing with here. You're, you're one. You're, you're a couple of big steps away from from doing it again. And he's not the type of player who's going to be so prohibitive for the Orioles to have on their roster that they have to trade him. I'm sure if somebody wants him, the Orioles would listen. But it's hard to imagine with just a few games left that that even him playing and him looking healthy would would be enough to sway teams to to make that kind of move. Yeah, and the Orioles really started losing after they lost to Glacius and Hayes really almost back-to-back. Do you think that now that Jose Iglesias is back and then Hayes will probably be back shortly after, the leadership qualities they bring to the table will kind of energize the Orioles a little bit? Yeah, I think the leadership part, especially for Iglesias, you know, there were a lot of young players that talked about how his presence helped them in the clubhouse, and he talked a few times about how how glad he was to be a part of a team like this where there's so many guys willing to learn, willing to listen. Um, I think it was more just how the lineup sh- shook out with those guys in it that made the Orioles a better team in, in, in those 
first couple weeks of the season when everyone was kind of hitting, you know, there's a big difference if you're Rio Ruiz between hitting seventh or eighth and hitting fourth or fifth. You know, the pitches you see, the pressure you put on yourself, and and that kind of showed through, you know. The Orioles catchers were batting at the bottom of the lineup in most cases at the beginning of the year, and now they're in the middle of it. It's just not, and then in replacing them in in those spots, in the seven, eight, nine spots, are guys who aren't really threats to do a lot of damage. This was a lineup that that made a lot of people work harder than they thought they would when they saw the Orioles on the calendar and lined up their start at the beginning of the season. And I think that's changed a little bit. So I think somebody like Iglesias and eventually when Hayes is back will, will be really useful to just get guys into batting positions they're a little more comfortable in, take a little of the pressure off some of these people who aren't ready to handle that pressure and let and let somebody like Iglesias kind of soak all that up in the middle and and be the guy who, who has everyone leaning on him and doesn't fall. Well, and with Hayes, you know, Cedric Mullins has come in, and he's done such an admirable job of taking over in center field for Hayes, leading the major leagues with six bunt hits. Kind of takes the pressure off the Orioles and having to rush Hayes back into the lineup. But you do miss that bat because he has uh, – the, they're different players. Uh, Mullins uses the speed. He uses the, the bunts and the infield hits to get on base, uh, whereas Hayes has more of that power profile, more of that gap-to-gap power. With that in mind, are you hearing any updates about we, – we saw Severino return to the lineup and Iglesias last night. Uh, do you have any injury updates for us regarding Hayes and regarding Hunter Harvey? So Hunter Harvey, it seems like he's perennially like imminent about to be activated. He's with the team right now, which means that their plan at least was to activate him sometime on this road trip. Uh, I believe Brandon Hyde said yesterday that it was still pretty likely that that was going to happen. They have three games left in Toronto. I think that you might not see Austin Hayes back with the team until they get back home next week just because, again, he's not on the trip. It doesn't seem like that rib was healing as quickly as that, that they initially hoped it would. I think they're also just trying to make sure it gets a lot of time to heal and 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 he gets time to he gets time to get himself back into baseball mode a little bit. But I I, I would say that Hunter Harvey's return is certainly more imminent than Austin Hayes. That's what it sounds like to me, and keeping on the pitching side of things, Wade LeBlanc, he's out for the rest of the year on the 60-day deal with the um, elbow injury. We don't, they haven't told us what it is yet, but you never want to mess around with elbows when you're a pitcher. Uh, Keegan Aiken has been bounced back and forth, kind of a la Kevin Gossman in the early part of his career, as Zach alluded to in his sounding off segment earlier. How do you feel about what the Orioles are doing with Aiken, do you think that he should stay at, on the big league club, or are you okay with them kind of, you know, bringing up, bringing him up, sending him down, bringing him up, sending him down? Um, I, th- I think I think it's it, this is one of those times, and it's not uh, it's one that it's hard to recognize what's happening in the moment, at least for me. But like more often than not, the Orioles will tell you what they what they think of someone by what they do with them, and it's pretty clear they think that he's not either ready to be a starter or or able to, to consistently give them what they want in the rotation on a consistent basis right now. That's that's hard to, you know, that's that's hard for people who want to see Keegan Aiken in there every single game to hear, but this is a guy who went through basically three years in the minors just pumping fastballs by guys and getting weak, weak pop-ups with, with okay command and okay secondary stuff, but not really challenging himself to do the types of things that the front office that took over would ultimately 
require somebody to do to get to the big leagues. He did it last year. He threw his changeup more often in, in Norfolk. He threw his slider more often in Norfolk. He walked a ton of guys. He didn't really give up a lot of home runs, and that was good to see in a triple-A environment where the ball was flying out. But it, it, it just seems like if, if they thought that he was of the caliber to be in the starting rotation, that he would, and whether it's Brandon Hyde who's trying to maximize, you know, this team's competitiveness this year and a year where anything can happen, or it's Michael Elias and the pitching folks in the front office who are saying, you know what, this guy isn't it right now. It's it's This is kind of the path they've taken for him. They've had plenty of chances to put him in the rotation and have it. And truthfully, we've never seen them break in a pitching prospect in the rotation before. It could be, you know, maybe we're doing this in two summers with D.L. Hall and having them come up to pitch and relief for a day and go back down and we're saying, okay, I guess this is how they do it. But it doesn't seem like it. It seems like this is kind of them seeing a guy who they can get something with out of in the bullpen right now and using it. Right. Well, and before we let you go, John, uh, one last question I have for you. Brandon Hyde said earlier this week that he is in win now mode. Now, that's what I expect a field manager to say. I don't think that that is necessarily in line with the organization's way of thinking right now. I don't think that they think that this rebuild is close to being done. But what does that mean for the Orioles? What does that mean for the fans that their manager is out here saying, "Look, I'm here to win right now." Well, I think that's you know, it's kind of what 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 I was trying to in a roundabout way get to right there. You know, it means that, you know, I, and I basically asked him after he mentioned win now mode, I said directly, I said, Brandon, last year, if Keegan, there was somebody like Keegan Aiken in his position, in your position in August, he would be in the rotation, right? And he said, yeah, but this year is different in that they're trying to, to maximize what they're doing competitively this year. And for him, maybe putting Thomas Eshelman, somebody who's, has a little more big league time and certainly more big league success this year into that rotation spot instead of Keegan Aiken is what allows that to happen. He said that they're not necessarily going to sacrifice players' developments and Keegan Aiken still built up and he's still being built up in between his times in the big leagues down at the boot camp and working as a starter there and, and logging the innings they want to see. But it basically means to fans that if, if a prospect comes up and they think he can help right now the way that Ryan Mountcastle has by playing every day, then he'll do that. And if it's somebody who who might not be fully ready, like Keegan Aiken, in their estimation, then it's not going to be a significant role. And I think that's just a little bit of a departure from, from what we saw last year. John, great stuff as always, man. Thank you so much for joining the show. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. Yeah, very welcome. Have a good one, fellas. All right, man. Take it easy. And once again, that was John Mioli, the Orioles beat writer for the Baltimore Sun, joining the bat around today. Uh, every Monday through Friday, Glenn, and Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer bring their pragmatic and irreverent approach to Baltimore sports via PressBox's Glenn Clark Radio. Watch the show at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. Listen at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. You never know who might pop up on GCR. This week, the guys called up with Raven Safety Anthony Levine Sr. and tight end Charles Scarf and NFL Network's Bucky Brooks, among others. Find those interviews today in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review at PressBoxOnline.com. I watched Charles Scarf at training camp last year. The dude is a monster. He's a huge tight end. Made some really spectacular plays. Didn't make the squad last year. There is an opening at tight end this year. He might be able to make it. And my aunt is a friend of his mom's. So that's pretty cool too. 
Uh, we're going to get a break, and when we come back, we're going to go with the payoff pitch around the league. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen, and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world, and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? Go to Army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Are you hungry? Well, sail over to Royal Farms for Chicken Palooza 3 and get your hooks on a two-piece world-famous chicken box with a portion of each sale benefiting the Johns Hopkins Children's Center or the all-new hand-breaded crispy on the outside, tender on the inside, world-famous Famous chicken sandwich, the Royal, for just five bucks. Shiver me tenders. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. Glory Days Grill's summer seasonal menu is now available for dine-in, dine-out on the patio, or to-go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new knockout shrimp or the delicious lobster roll with grilled corn made with real Maine lobster. They're open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and stay positive during this challenging time in our community. The biggest pro wrestling star Stars today and all time all have one thing in common. You've heard them on Jobbing Out. Brett the Hitman Hart. It's good to be on the show. Adam Cole. How are you guys doing today? Matt Riddle. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Broken Matt Hardy. Excellent. The bad guy, Scott Hall. Mm, hey, yo. Keith Lee. Appreciate you guys having me, man. Bill Goldberg. My pleasure. Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. Mick Foley is with us. This is the greatest name for a wrestling show I've ever heard. MJF. I'm glad you're happy I'm on this show because I'm freaking miserable. Let's yeah. have Chris Jericho, Le Champion, AJ, Aaron, Brandon, and Glenn are talking pro wrestling every week on Jobbing Out. Find it at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio, iTunes, and SoundCloud. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with the bat around here. On Press Box, if you can catch us at facebook.com slash pressboxsports or pressboxsports online slash radio. And it is now time for the payoff pitch around the league. The Mets used three sixth-inning home runs to cap a five-run inning and defeat, defeat the Yankees 6-4 to four in Game 1 of a twin bill yesterday. Ahmed Rosario, Ahmed Rosario excuse me, had a pinch hit walk-off two-run home run to send the Yankees to their seventh straight loss in Game 2 of the doubleheader. Scott Kingery hit a walk-off three-run homer off, off Mark Melanson in the bottom of the 11th to send the Braves to a heartbreaking 7-4 loss at the hands of the Phillies. Eugenia Suarez had three hits and three RBIs to back up Tyler Molly's six-inning 11-strikeout performance as the Reds held off a late Cubs comeback to beat Chicago 6-5. 
Yasmani Grandal hit a walk-off home run to send the White Sox into a tie for first place as they beat the Royals 6-5. Ryan Yarborough tossed six and two-thirds of four-hit ball, and the Rays scored a run in both the eighth and ninth innings to blank the Marlins 2-0 and extend their lead in the AL East to four games over the spiraling Yankees. Max Scherzer rounded back in the form as he struck out 11 over six innings of one-run ball, and Trey Turner turned in three hits and three RBIs to help lead the Nationals over the Red Sox 10-2. We haven't talked much about the Nationals. We haven't talked about them at all today. Usually we do. They're playing some bad baseball right now, man. They're having a really bad hangover from that World Series championship. Shinsu Chu and Nick Solak each collected two hits and two RBIs, while Mike Miner threw six scoreless innings as the Rangers beat the surging Dodgers 6-2. Jed Jerko homered twice, and Ryan Braun added a three-run shot of his own to help lead the Brewers over the Pirates 9-1. Corbin Burns struck out 10 in six innings to pick up his first decision in seven games and four starts in that game. Framil Reyes homered among his three hits and registered five RBIs to raise his average to 307 in Cleveland's 14-2 shellacking of the Cardinals. Manny Machado, Eric Hosmer, Will Myers, and Ty France combined for 14 hits and eight RBIs as the Pirates stomped out the Rockies 10-4. Matt Kemp homered in his return to action for the Rockies after leading the boycott of Thursday night's postponed game. Mike Trout hit his 11th home run of the season, and Andrew Heaney struck out 10 in 7 and 2 thirds solid innings to help lead the Angels over the Mariners 3 2. And finally, Sterling Marte and Christian Walker both, both drove in two runs, and Zach Gallon picked up his first win in seven starts by throwing seven innings and allowing just one run as the Diamondbacks defeated the Giants 7 4. It was the Giants' third straight loss following their seven-game winning streak. Zach, what do we have on tap today for games? A lot of games on tap today. Uh, At 1 o'clock hour, we have the Subway Series continuing with Aaron Judge's Yankees and Thor's uh, Thor, well, he's not playing anymore, but on the Mets. Uh, Both of them are on the injured reserve. Uh, We have at 1 o'clock as well, the cooled-off Tigers will try to face the slugging Twins. The Indians, who are only a half game back, face off against the Cardinals, who have a lot of games to make up this season. And finally, in the 1 o'clock hour, we have an NL East battle of a Phillies reworked bullpen and a Braves retooled starting rotation. 2 o'clock hour, Gerard Dyson will make his Sox debut against the Royals. At the 4 o'clock hour, we have Game 2 of the Twins and Tigers doubleheader. At the 4 o'clock hour as well, the Red Hot Cubs face off against the Reds, who will probably be trading Bauer very soon. At 6 o'clock hour, we have a Florida matchup between the Rays and the Marlins. Rays command the East, and the Marlins recently are getting Garrett Cooper back in their lineup. 6.37, the Jays will take an, look to take another game against the Orioles and stay in that wild card position. At the 7 o'clock hour, Bellinger's Dodgers take on Gallo's Rangers in an interleague matchup. As well as at 7 o'clock, we have two struggling teams, the Pirates and the Brewers battle where Yelich is batting below the Mendoza line. <laughs> Another marquee matchup at 7 o'clock is the A's and the Strohs battle, and the Strohs look to move up in their division. And in the final two 7 o'clock games, the Game 2 of the Cubs and Reds doubleheader, and then a game between two disappointing teams in the Red Sox and the Nats, as we alluded to before. At 8 o'clock hour, we have the lethal, lethal Padres duo of Tatis and Machado taking on the Rockies. They'll look to stay hot. MVP candidate Yaz takes on the Diamondbacks, who are both in the bottom of the NL West. And finally, at the 9 o'clock hour, the Mariners take on the Angels, perhaps Dylan Bundy's final Angels start. You know, it's funny, man. You just talked about the, the duo of Tatis and Machado. And two weeks ago, we were on here talking about how Machado is not living up to that $300 million contract. He was hitting like 230 at the time with like four home runs. And then the dude goes out that following week and wins NL Player of the, Player of the Week. He hits three homers and a doubleheader the other day. Manny Machado is absolutely 
on fire. And if I can take credit for that, I'll take credit for that. Because we were, I Manny Machado is my favorite player in the game. I love me some Manny. I wish that the Orioles had kept him and built around him. They didn't. Not gonna cry over sour grapes right now. But the dude's hitting well over 300. Another four hit performance last night. He's got 11 home runs. Absolutely mashing and really making me eat some crow right now. Because two weeks ago I said, "What's going on with him out there?" And he has just been scorching hot ever since. Some other guys. Some other former Orioles who are having big years. Dylan Bundy, 258 ERA, 44 strikeouts in 33 in the third innings. He's 3 and 2. Then you look at Mike Yastrzemski hitting 290 with seven home runs and 23 RBIs, playing a gold glove caliber center field out there for the Giants out in San Francisco. People are upset about a little bit about Dylan Bundy. I think the kind of the writing was on the wall with Dylan Bundy. And that was also kind of a salary dump because he had a big raise in arbitration. Um, but people are really upset about Mike Yastrzemski. They are really upset about this. I'm not. I'm not. And look, would it have been nice if the Orioles had called him up in 2018 or 2019 instead of Joey freaking Rickard? Yeah, it would have been nice. Instead, they didn't. They sent him to pack into San Francisco. Guys, Mike Yastrzemski isn't the difference in 2018 when the Orioles lost 115 games. He's not the difference in 2019 when the Orioles lost 108 games. And he's on the wrong side of 30. Nice player. Wish he could have done it in Baltimore. He didn't. When this rebuild is over, he's going to be 33 years old. Assuming that the rebuild is over in in the next two to three years. Solid player. Would have liked to see him in Baltimore. But am I upset about it? No. Because what place does a 30-year-old minor league player who had 700 minor league games under his belt before he got his big league call, what place does he have on a rebuilding franchise. It's not like Yaz put up incredible numbers in the Orioles minor league system either. They were, Nobody saw this coming. They were league average at best. I mean, that's why he never made the majors. The Orioles never felt compelled to bring him up because he didn't really prove that he belonged there. They traded him to the Giants for a guy who is now released out of the Orioles organization. They probably saw him as a guy that they could use analytics to fix or somewhere in that, in that range. But they traded Yaz. I wasn't upset about it at the time. It's not like Orioles fans were very upset about it at the time. I don't remember anyone being. And now they're upset because he's, you know, basically an MVP candidate at this point. But like you said, I mean, what is a 30-year-old doing in a rebuild? It's, even with the Giants. I mean, I, I think the Giants are better served trading him at this point than having him on the roster for a few years. They could probably get something for him now while he's this MVP candidate when they're two or three years away from being a competitive team just like the Orioles are. So it, it doesn't bother me at all. Like you said, he's not the difference in 2018 at all. You know, there are guys maybe that could have been, but it's certainly not Yaz. Yeah, man. And people... Hindsight is always 2020, right? It's always 2020. And literally, if you claim that you saw this coming with Yaz, shut up. No, you didn't. No, like, you didn't see this. It's the, my exact mentality when people said that they expected the Orioles to lose 13-2 to on opening day. No, you did not. All right? You did not see Mike Yastrzemski coming. The, the guy was, as Zach alluded to, he was a mediocre, middle-of-the-pack player through 700 minor league games. We're not talking 700 minor league at-bats. We're talking 700 minor league games. Nobody saw this coming. Good for Yaz for coming up, 
following in his father in his grandfather's footsteps, the Hall of Famer Carl Yastrzemski. Good for him for making something of his career. But this is a dude who's going to get one contract in his life after after his arbitration is over, and then he's going to ride off into the sunset. By the time that happens, he'll be in his late 30s, and the Orioles will be back to their winning ways with somebody just as good like a Heston Kerstad playing in right field. Would have loved to have Yaz here. Don't care that he's not here. I just I could not care less. Yeah, and the question everyone has to just ask themselves is, if the Orioles bring him up in maybe 2015 or 2016, when he was a little bit younger in his earlier 20s, it, does he become the same player he is now? And the resounding answer to that is no way. Right. Clearly the Giants found something. They unlocked some of his ability that wasn't there before. Because, like like we said, he, he was mediocre in the Orioles system. They clearly taught him something. Maybe they retooled his swing. I'm not, I'm not sure the specifics of it. But he would never have become the same player here. He, he's a 13th-round pick. It's not like you know the Orioles wasted a, a first-round pick or something like that on him. This is a 13th-round pick who's just now panning out in, in his late 20s, going into his 30s. It, it, it doesn't bother me at all. And if he had been a first-round pick or even picks one through five, he'd be here. Oh, yeah, for he'd sure. He'd be here. DJ Stewart was getting at bats each of the last three years for the Orioles. Mike Yastrzemski would be here if he was that high of a pick. But like you said, a 13th-round pick. And honestly, you could have made more of a case for him being called up earlier in his career when he was more highly touted and putting up better numbers than he did the last half of his minor league career with the Orioles. You could have made a better case for it then than you could when they traded him. You'll never make a good case for Joey Rickard. Joey Rickard is the definition of a 4A player. I'm not even sure he's in the league right now. He is with the Giants. He, he just got called up about two days ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> eating, eating some more crow here. But, I mean, Joey Rickard isn't a difference maker. No. You know, but the, the Orioles liked him for some reason. I think they wanted him to be a player that he wasn't, which is a guy who gets on base and steals a ton of bases, and that's just not who Joey Rickard is. But... Whatever. Not upset that Yaz isn't here. We're going to move on to other things. Orioles lost to the Blue Jays last night 5-4 to four in heartbreaking fashion as they continue to unfathomably pitch to Randall Gritchick, who has tuned them up to the, to the sound of a 9-for-19 batting line with five home runs and 13 RBIs in four games, single-handedly beating the Orioles in four games this year. We talked about it all show. They just keep pitching to a guy who they can't get out in big situations it's it's killing the momentum of a team that otherwise has been playing over their heads all year. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is a problem. And like we said before, the Orioles have had problems with many, many guys. You know, Gleyber Torres nearly hit 400 off of them last year. Gleyber Torres was on pace in a 162-game season. If he played the Orioles every game, he would have hit 117 home runs. That's insane. It's it's insane. And it's it's clearly a mindset thing with both the pitchers and the hitter. The hitter knows that, you know, this is the Orioles pitching. I'm going to hit them well. I know what's coming. And the, the pitchers know the same thing, that, that Randall Gritchick's at the plate, and Randall Gritchick is going to hurt them. And I, it, all the mindset thing just makes it happen. I mean, it, it just happens every time. Hit two home runs a couple games ago against them, and then almost hit a third that was caught at the warning track. Hits a walk-off last night. They definitely need to decide who they're pitching to next time. Yeah, man. It seems like Betts in 16, Judge in 17, Torres last year, Gritchick this year. It seems like all those guys hit 117 home runs yeah. against the Orioles. They at least probably combined for 117 home runs. It's been – I used to watch guys like Nick Swisher, who – Nick Swisher was an okay player, right? He was, he, 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 was a, he was a good player, but certainly not a guy that should have beaten you 
every time he played you. I think he has his most career home runs playing against the Orioles, and he did most of that in Oakland when they were only playing him six to ten times a year. It's, it, you can live with Betts or Judge beating you. You can't live with Randall Gritchick or Nick Swisher being the players that beat you. Anyway, we would like to have a little bit more time for Orioles banter. We do have Kevin Brown coming on to the show next. So with that in mind, while I get Kevin on the line, Zach's going to talk to you about uh, Pressbox's most recent issue. Yeah, the latest edition of Pressbox is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Cal Ripken breaking Lou Gehrig's consecutive games record and the unique 19 minutes of silence ESPN's Chris Berman spent while the celebration unfolded. Bill Ordine spoke to both Berman and Ripken about the incredible moment. Also inside, Ken Zalas offers his fantasy football draft guide and much more. Pressbox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition as well as the best Daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBox.com. All right. I am really, really excited to talk to our next guest. Our next guest is continuing, is in the beginning stages of continuing a proud lineage of Orioles broadcasters. We're talking Orioles, almost synonymous with Orioles baseball, are Chuck Thompson, John Miller, Fred Manfra, Joe Angel. And actually, this guy was brought in last year. I'm not sure if it was to help replace Joe Angel, but he certainly came in when Joe Angel surprisingly retired. Right now on the line, we have Kevin Brown, Orioles broadcaster. Kevin, how are you today? I'm, I mean, I'm good, but I think you guys have way overhyped me, so I feel like now I'm not going to be able to deliver. You uh, should have come in and said, here's this bag of trash who <laughs> occasionally gets a call right once in a while. Well, I'll tell you what, man. It's that personality that's really um, enchanted Orioles fans with you. You're doing a great job calling these games, man. It's been it's been a breath of fresh air considering we've been watching up until this year some not great Orioles baseball. You definitely bring some levity to these situations. Well, I appreciate that. It, it's it's very kind of you guys to say that. Um, I, I genuinely am, am am humbled and bowled over that people like this, and I really try to have as much fun as I can on the air while also telling the facts and calling a good game, but I'm, I'm glad people are seeming to to have as much fun, you know, watching or listening as I am calling it. Uh, I, I feel like we're doing something right, if that's the case. Definitely, and you can tell that you're having fun calling these games, because I think is what really Orioles fans really like about you. You have... A Joe Buck quality, I, I've heard that mentioned multiple times, but with much more enthusiasm. So it's definitely been refreshing to hear you. Now, last year, I believe that your schedule, you had 54 games. That's a third of the season. Is that correct? Uh, I It's something like that, whether it's exactly that or, or not. Yeah, it was right around 54, right around a third of the year. And are you on that same track about a third of the year this year? Yeah, it's a little more than a third of the year with the shortened season. Um, I do have some more TV coming up in a couple of weekends for the series at the Yankees and a few more radio series as well. So I think it works out to be right around a third or a little bit more than a third again. Now, is that a schedule that was worked out? Now, well, first and foremost, were you brought in because of Joe Angel's departure or was that something that was already in the works before he announced his retirement last year? No, as, as far as I know, Joe retired, and then the team was looking for someone. They reached out to um, to my agent, 
uh, my agency, really, not just specifically for me, but, but reached out to, to the agency that represents me, saying, hey, Joe Angel's um, retiring, and, and we're going to look for somebody to start filling some games. So the first I heard about the job last year was the first that I heard that, that Joe was retiring, which was a little bit before the, uh, the news broke publicly. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, was the third of a season what worked for your schedule or just what the Orioles, they kind of wanted to just kind of let you get your feet wet before giving you, before putting more on your plate? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I, I, I'm very lucky in that I have two jobs that are really, really wonderful right now and two employers that are, are great to me. But you know, I've been with ESPN now for, I think it's, we're going on five years maybe in some capacity. And I have a full-time situation with them. Okay. Uh, I've done college football and basketball and other sports, hockey, softball, baseball over the last few years. So just schedule-wise, you know, that was a, a, a contract I had. And uh, I'm fortunate to still be with ESPN and to still have a number of events with that. So it's not a scenario where, you know, even if I wanted to, I couldn't say, hey, I can do all all 162, which has not been approached to me. You know, nobody has said, okay, do the full season at this point. But it's been a, a, a mix of, you know, whatever certain amount of space the Orioles have versus my uh, availability with ESPN. Uh, I'm very happy that I've been able to do both because both in their own way are wonderful and glorious jobs, and I'm, I feel super lucky to have either. So, yeah, to be able to, to get to fit both in. Is, uh, is is a big win. Yeah, Kevin, before you came over to the Orioles, what did you kind of know about what was going on with their rebuild and, uh, you know, what state the organization was in? I knew a little bit. Um, you know, just um, I, I worked seven years of minor league baseball with the Syracuse Chiefs. They were the national AAA affiliate. So we'd see the Norfolk Tides a couple of times a year, not in the same division as Syracuse, but we'd make a trip there, they'd make a trip here. So I, I pretty much had my baseline bearings on the Orioles, uh, Orioles organization from that. I, I can't say I was following terribly closely before I, I knew I could be in the mix for this. Uh, the good news is I, I feel like I came in at a good time organizationally because even if I wasn't there for the previous organization, I was a new broadcaster with a new manager or a new general manager in a new front office last year. So it, it feels like, you know, I've been able to, to be really in here on the ground floor kind of from day one. Yeah, it's, it's the Orioles are playing better this year than they played in your first season covering the team. What are you seeing from this team that has them playing better? Is this sustainable, and do you think that this is maybe bringing this rebuild to its conclusion sooner that, rather than later? I think it's sustainable to a degree. Um, I, you know, I think we've seen some regression to the mean in the past couple of weeks, and I think regression to the mean and inconsistency are going to be parts of this. I think that's the case because this is such a young team, not just in age, but, but young in Major League experience. Yeah, there are plenty of Major League players that are 26, 27 that have several years of experience. It's not the case here because these guys you know, have, have not had chances in other organizations. A lot has been made about the team of renegades, as Brandon Hyde said. You know, I call them the island of misfit toys, right? It's guys that were good enough to stick on a 40-man roster for a little while, but 
but were buried behind other players and, and now are getting the chance and now thriving. And we're seeing like why these guys were so talented and why they were thought of enough to be on contending teams' 40-man rosters but not thought of quite enough to be part of the 25, like Pedro Severino, like Renato Nunez, like Rio Ruiz. So I think there's a level of sustainability in that this team collectively is better than most everyone thought. You know, the talent right. was there. It, it just takes consistent at-bats and consistent playing time. Uh, the bullpen has been one of the big surprises for me. I, I know they gave up the lead with the Randall Gritchick home run against Gold Salser in the 10th yesterday, but I've been mostly really impressed by a lot of these pitchers in the bullpen. I think it's been a, a year where we've had quite a few best-case scenarios out there. So, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> People say, well, the rebuild, uh, is, is it going a little faster than than we think? And, and I, you know, I'm cognizant of what Mike Elias has said from the start of this. And this is the same deal from the Houston days, which is basically nobody in the organization is putting an end date on this. And, and the reason is you don't want to put that in players' minds. You don't want the psychology of saying, okay, we're coming in, we expect the team will be competitive in 2022. And then what does a major league player in 2019 or 2020 think? He thinks, well, right. You know, what do I care? Okay, we're not going to be petted for four years. Am I going to go out there and, and give my all? Am, am I going to be fully dedicated? Am I going to want to sign here as a free agent if I know this team's not going to be competitive for two years? Probably not. Um, you, you see a group of guys right now playing with an energy that is infectious and an enthusiasm that I think comes from the ability to play every day, which so many of these players have never had in the major league. And it's almost like they have blinders on. And, and everybody else in the world knew the Orioles weren't going to compete this year, except nobody told the 28 guys in the dugout or on the field or in the bullpen. So, yeah, I, I think just the talent on this team was higher than the world thought going in. And I think with that, youth comes inconsistency, but I think the talent is there to see this team I'd say be competitive. I mean, it's there's only half the year to go at this point. Like, yeah. why can't they be competitive for the next 29 games? I, I think they absolutely can. And the Orioles right now, yeah, they, they've lost 9 of 11. Seven of those games they've lost by two runs or less. And I've always said, and I said this when I used to do a different show for a different network last year, I said, you don't judge this team by wins and losses, by, but rather how many one- and two-run games they're playing in. And right now they're playing in – a lot of one- and two-run games. As I said just a moment ago, seven of those losses by two runs or less. And good teams will start to win those games as a mature. Uh, is that something that you look at as far as progress from a team, or is that just me? No, I think it makes a big difference. You know, Run differential matters, right? That That's a statistic that can be predictive, and, and often is very predictive. It, it goes both ways. You can have a team that, loses a lot of close games, but it has a pretty tight run differential and usually improves the next year. You know, if you have a great team that doesn't have a good run differential, they're always a good regression candidate. And I think it's, again, the regression to the mean of this bullpen a little bit. Cole Salser has been hit harder in the last 11 games than he had been to start the year. Miguel Castro has had a couple of bouts of inconsistency in that span. Tanner Scott has actually given up a run. <laughs> 
So, you know, in these tight games, the bullpen has, has been a little bit leakier than it was at the start. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think the bullpen was a little better than it's going to sustainably be at the start. I think it might be a little bit worse than it's going to sustainably be um, in the last 11 games. So I think when you look at the trajectory of good organizations and organizations that build, and the Astros are among this, and the Cubs are among this, and there are plenty of other examples over the years. You start by getting young, and the team is torn down, and you lose a lot. Then you lose closer, right? Then you win close, and then eventually you get to the point where where you're winning games more comfortably. Um, these losses are much more competitive than last year, and there's just a, a more engaging quality about this team. Like, I know it was a loss, but two weeks ago, the Sunday game against the Nats, uh, it was with Max Scherzer pitching, and it's it's 5-1 going into the 6, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a game that completely gets away from the Orioles last year. You know, somebody in the bullpen comes in and gives up a 3, and it's 8-1. And, you know, it's a 9-2 final. Not this team. I know they lost, but they come back. They put a couple of runners on. Pedro Severino shows you why he's improved, crushes a home run. He probably doesn't take Max Scherzer deep last year. Anthony Santander doesn't take Max Scherzer deep twice in a game last year. The bullpen doesn't solidify the game. So it's a kind of loss that is a 6-5 loss and is crushing because you were so close. But last year, I think that's a 9-2 to game. So that is a microcosm of the difference from last year's team to this year's team. And maybe next year or maybe 2022's team, that's a, a 6-5 win instead. But I think, yeah, you need to have this kind of season as the stepping stone. Yeah, more or less. Would you say, you know, there's a difference between bad baseball and losing baseball? The Orioles are more just playing losing baseball right now. Is that correct? Uh, listen, I, I think bad baseball is pretty much bad in two of three areas, if not all three, hitting, pitching, fielding. And I I don't think the Orioles have been consistently bad in all three of those areas, maybe a couple of games. But, yeah, they have been playing losing baseball of late, but they've still been doing things well. They're they're having games where they hit. They're having games where they pitch. They're having games where they field. They're coming back. They still have a lot of really good individual performers. Um, It's just the kind of baseball that's played by a team that, this sounds like a cliche, but isn't necessarily used to winning. You know, the guys who are one pitch away, or maybe it's the difference between taking the 1-0 pitch for a strike or swinging at it or vice versa. Little things. I, little things that you can learn through experience and that these players are learning through experience. You know, by the time this season ends, whatever the result is, next year these players are going to go into the season having had more experience in close major league games and having felt what it's like for a time to be on a winning major league team, whether that time has passed or whether there is more time to feel that, I think that makes a difference. Well, you talked about the bullpen a little bit earlier, and I really like what I've seen from Tanner Scott specifically, but also from Sean Armstrong. I think that Cole Saucer has had he's had a solid season. You know, he has the three blown saves, but he hasn't been terrible. I think that we're probably going to see one of one or both of Givens and Castro traded by the deadline. With that in mind, do you see the Orioles making any moves to bolster? Probably not bolster the club, but to do something with their roster in the next couple of days for the trade deadline. 
I, I really don't know. I, I, it, it strikes me that there is a good chance that the Orioles trade a player or players out, and I don't think there is a good chance the Orioles trade for major league talent just because it would be out of character for Mike Elias to suddenly hit the turbo button after one season and then you know, 31 games of this truncated season. Because everything he's said since taking the job indicates that he and the organization are in this for the long haul. And I, I don't think, you know, the possibility of getting that eighth spot in the expanded playoffs, I don't think he's going to be distracted by that shiny object. So I don't think the major league team is going to, you know, be bolstered in the next couple of days. Uh, I, I think it's certainly possible that other contending teams or teams with more urgent needs to contend could trade for some of these players. I think the Phillies are a perfect example. The Phillies are on the outside looking in right now, but Mm -hmm. with the money the Phillies are spending, which just dramatically outpaces the Orioles, uh, and a general manager who feels like he's probably got one foot in the fire, they feel like they have to win something this year. So they go ahead and trade for a couple of relievers from the Red Sox. I think a team like that might be desperate enough to make a move for one of those Orioles players you talked about. I don't know generally what this year is going to be like, and I won't I won't be surprised if we get through Monday and the Orioles haven't traded anybody. I know that the prevailing thought is they'll trade somebody, but the trade deadline this year is, is so unusual with the fact that you can only you know name players from your pool to be traded. We saw that with the Richard Blyer deal, where it's just a player to be named later with the Marlins. I think there's a situation where you could trade a player and get three players to be named later back. And with the lack of minor league games, people being able to scout, you know, I think the Orioles may just say, well, we don't really have much in the way of pending free agents after this year. That that list is pretty small. So maybe we reset and maybe we take the off season for a fuller evaluation. I think if a team bowls you over for somebody, you take it. But I just don't think we're going to see that active of a deadline, period. I don't think that many teams are going to be willing to give up that much, given their financial circumstances. And I don't think teams are going to be that aggressive in trying to offload players, given that they don't have a great idea of the return coming back. So if if I had to pick, I'd say I I think the Orioles will make a move. Um, But I won't be surprised if if the roster stands pat. You know, I, I know people bring Michael Gibbons' name up. That makes sense. I'm sure there are contenders that would want him, but you know, the Orioles can say, well, we can hang on to him and, and wait for the offseason. You know, there's another year of team control there. Um, Alex Cobb's name has been out there. Maybe the Orioles get a great offer for Alex Cobb, or maybe they go into the season next year and say, all right, he's now an expiring free agent. We have a fuller year of control and maybe a fuller year of, of seeing what Cobb has done. Maybe teams are wary on you know six or seven starts of Alex Cobb after he missed all of last year. So, I, I won't be shocked if the deadline comes and goes and, and it's the same 28 as the day before. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't be shocked either. I, I am more inclined to believe that they will stand pat, but I do think if they make a move, it'll be a guy like Castro or a guy like Givens, um, who pretty much what you see is what you get from them, and the, the or, and they're young enough that the Orioles could trade them and get something back. Now, another guy who's young, whose return is imminent, 
is Hunter Harvey, and especially if the Orioles trade away a Castro, a Givens, or both, what do you see Hunter Harvey's role being when he comes back to the ball club? Well, last year when, when he came up, I mean, it, it was not long before he was pitching in the eighth and ninth inning and, and closing out games. I mean, he was thrust immediately into high leverage spots. So uh, I'm, I'm guessing that'll be the case again. I, I think he's ready to come back. I, it sounds like he feels that he can be back now, and he's itching to get back there. The Orioles are just taking their time as to when to do it. So, yeah, I think he'll be out there. I, I don't know if he'll be you know, out there in a 4-3 game in the ninth inning right away, but I think high leverage spots pretty soon. I think Brandon Hyde will feel comfortable with that. Cole Salser, you mentioned the three blown saves. You know, part of that is you know he's had some games where multi-inning stints have been tough for him. I, yeah. I think Cole Salser's been really strong for an inning, and has had difficulties when you try to squeeze two out of him. Hunter Harvey comes back, you probably don't need to do that as much. And I, I don't know if he becomes the traditional closer right away. My guess is from the time Hunter Harvey returns, he will get the bulk of the ninth inning opportunities um, if he looks anything close to what he did last year. It's a pretty exciting proposition because this bullpen has been so surprisingly effective. And... Sometimes I feel like we've just forgotten about Hunter Harvey. Like I, I don't even talk about him during a lot of these games because the relievers have been so electric. But you know, last year from the time he came up, he may have been the most exciting guy in the club. So yeah, I, I think he'll be thrust into a high leverage late inning spot right away. I think Brandon Hyde's very comfortable with him, and it, it doesn't sound like he's going to be need. Uh, he, he's going to need to be eased in. Because when you hear Hunter Harvey and you hear Orioles folks talk about him, it sounds like he's been doing the easing in right now in, in sim games and in side sessions. So I think he'll be raring to go. Yeah, we saw Tanner Scott over the past couple of years that Scott really couldn't control his pitches he, when he was put in high-leverage situations. He was throwing 100, and it was just kind of wild. You know, if, if Hunter Harvey is put in these high-leverage situations and, and the fact that he does throw 100 miles an hour, do you think something could you know, get away from him a little bit? You never know. I mean, especially he, now he says he's healthy and he's ready to go, and I believe him, but this season with the uncertainty over anyone's conditioning, anyone's fitness, anyone's readiness. You know, what does a, a, a short summer camp do to you physically, do to you mentally? Uh, it's certainly possible. You know, I, I know he's had some control issues, you know, as a, a starter in the past and obviously injury issues too. Uh, th- this is kind of a year where I'm not ruling anything out. I, I, I don't expect he's going to come back and, and walk five batters per nine, but, you know, Maybe he does. Maybe maybe it is just the difficulties of dealing with a shortened season and an uncertain March to, to June or July period for most of these guys. I mean, I, I take Hunter Harvey at his word that he's ready to go, but yeah, we never know. And the difficulty here is Hunter Harvey may take a couple of outings to, to get himself right and then maybe raring to go after that. And uh, there could be two weeks left in the season at that point because you just don't have the timeline. You don't have the length to get stretched out. So we may see Hunter Harvey look like one of the best relievers in the league, and there may be six games left. You just don't know. 
Well, it certainly will be nice to see him come back and give us a glimpse of the Orioles' future in the bullpen, along with arms like Sean Armstrong, Tanner Scott, Dylan Tate. It'll be nice to see Hunter Harvey added to that mix. Kevin, really appreciate you coming on the show. Before we let you go, we have a segment on the show that we call Take to Rake, where Zach and I each pick a player that we think is going to have a big week offensively for the Orioles. Last week, Melanie Newman was on the show. You know her well. She, um, I'm familiar with her work. You are familiar with her work, yes, sir. And she picked Pedro Severino. Severino had an off week, and he had an injury that kept him out. So, with that in mind, it is your turn to pick a player for Take to Rake. I hope you don't pick mine, but if you do, I'll just pick somebody else. Who are you okay. taking this week for Take to Rake? So, the bar is very low. That's good. Thanks, thanks to Melanie for that. <laughs> um, well, I hope I'm not taking yours. I loved the swing we saw from Renato Nunez on the tying home run yesterday. And he's one of those streaky hitters who, who comes and goes, but when he is on... He is electric, and I saw a couple of signs of it late in the Boston series. It was a rough home stand for him for the most part, but he had a couple of balls hard at the end of that series. He crushed another home run in the eighth inning yesterday. I think the signs are there. I think this is going to be a good stretch coming up for Renato Nunez. So he has my take to rake. I think that uh, you and Zach are on the same page because when you picked him, Zach pumped his fist like, Damn, he just took my player. I think, ah, that, I think that's Zach, who Zach I'm was going to take. Do you want him, Zach? We can work no, no, he, he, he's like... all yours, Kevin. He's all yours. Well, Nunez, I think, is a great pick because we all know that he's a streaky guy and he tends to hit home runs in bunches. So excellent pick for Renato Nunez from Kevin Brown. Kevin, thank you so much for joining the show. Really excited to have gotten to talk to you today, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Wait, do I not get to hear your picks? Oh, you know what? We did that last week. I'm so well, sorry. You know that. what? Let's do it. We're going to just jump into Take to Rake right now. Usually it's the last segment of the show, but we're going to do it okay, right now. Okay, so I'm just, I'm just screwing up the whole show. Right no, 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 no. You deserve to know. You deserve <laughs> to know. So last week, Melanie took Pedro Severino. He did not play well. Uh, he was injured most of the week. Um, Zach took... I took, I took Chance Sisko. Oh, he took Chance Sisko. He played three games. He went two yeah. for nine with a walk and two runs scored. I took the hot hand. I took Ryan Mountcastle. Ryan Mountcastle went eight for 18. He had three multi-hit games. Mm. He had three RBIs. Has a five-game hitting streak going. So, I won. I won take to rake last okay. week. Only my second win of the season. So, I'm going to take it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm, I'm soak in all the glory here. And it means I get to pick first between Zach and I. So this week, he's been on a bit of a downward turn recently. I think he's going to bounce back. I'm taking Anthony Santander to um, – he's my take to rake this week. I think that he's going to come back. You know, maybe not his uh, the home runs and bunches like we saw earlier in the year, but I think he's primed for a bounce back and he's going to get back on a hot streak and, you know, put, put together some really nice games over the next six or seven days. I'm going to say Ryan Mountcastle stays hot. He's my take to rake, and you won with him last week, so I, I can't not pick him this week. He's got a couple of home runs coming, I think. He, he definitely has. I mean, it, it's got to happen soon. It hasn't happened yet, but you know, hopefully a couple extra base hits, and he stays hot. All right, so Kevin Brown taking Renato Nunez, Zach Goodman taking Ryan Mountcastle, and your host, Paul Valley taking Anthony Santander. Kevin, thank you so much, man. I hope to talk to you again soon. I feel good about this. A big Nunez week coming up. I'm, uh, primed, I'm primed for a victory. It is a solid, solid pick, and we'll, we'll let you know if you win. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. All right, man. Take care. That was Kevin Brown, Orioles broadcaster extraordinaire, 
joining the show. You know, I have to admit, I am disappointed to learn that the third of a season schedule for him is what works best for him. I understand that he has a full-time gig with ESPN, and it's ESPN, so I get it. Orioles fans would love to hear this guy calling, even if it's just half the games. If it was all the games, I think we'd be giddy about it. He does such an excellent job. You know what? Oh, man, we didn't even get to talk to him about the jab that he took at Dennis uh, uh, Dennis Eckersley. Eckersley, on opening day, said he, he feels bad for the broadcasters that have to cover the Orioles. Well, the Red Sox have the worst record in the American League right now, may- maybe the second worst, but they're down at the bottom of the heap. And Kevin threw a shot at them in the game last week. He said, you know, I feel really bad for these Red Sox broadcasters right now during that four-game series with the Red Sox. And damn, I wish we could have talked to him about that. I wish we could have. Um, guys, we got to get a break. I want to remind everybody that the Bat Around is brought to you by Chesapeake Employers Insurance, your workers' compensation insurance specialist. That is Chesapeake Employers Insurance, bringing the Bat Around to your airwaves this Saturday and every Saturday. We're going to get a break, and when we come back, we're going to close out the show. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen, and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world, and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? Go to Army.com Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can you give me a ride? Ahoy, matey. I'd love to. Batten down the hatches and let's set sail. Um, why are you talking like a pirate? Because our voyage will stop at Royal Farms for Chicken Palooza 3. Yo ho ho! Royal Farms Chicken Palooza 3 is going on now, and it's a treasure trove of golden chicken delights. Sail in and get a delicious two-piece, world-famous chicken box made with fresh, never-frozen chicken or the all-new, hand-breaded, crispy-on-the-outside, tender-on-the-inside, world-famous chicken sandwich, the Royal, for only 5 bucks. Plus, a portion of each chicken box sale will benefit the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. Well, uh, shiver me timbers, Dad. Let's heave ho to Rofo. Oh, that's my little scallywag. Royal Farms Chicken Palooza 3. It's bigger, better, and more tasty than ever. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. Baltimore's favorite bar, Sliders Bar and Grill, is now open. Just across the street from Camden Yards, Sliders is open, and they've added new menu items, new frozen cocktails, and new 32-ounce beers. If you're not ready to go out just yet, you can still order from Sliders' carryout menu, and they still have liter bottles of hand sanitizer available for just $15. Call 443-835-0906 or 410-547-8891 or visit slidersbaltimore.com. We'll see you this summer at Sliders. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. 
The latest edition of Press Box is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Cal Ripken breaking Lou Gehrig's consecutive games record and the unique 19 minutes of silence ESPN's Chris Berman spent while the celebration unfolded. Bill Ardine spoke to both Berman and Ripken about the incredible moment. Also inside, Ken Zalis offers his fantasy football draft guide and much more. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right, we're back to close out the battle round. I am never going to not love the Glenn Clark Radio music. I'm, I, I mention it literally every week when I hear it coming back from break. I just love it. Sorry, guys. I'll try, I'll try to get better about that. I just, I just love the music. Anyway, um, or this is usually where we do take the rake, but Kevin was right. You know, if we're going to ask him to make a pick for Take the Rake, we got to make the picks with him on the air. So we did that. We'll try to be better about that with our guests in the coming weeks because we sold Melanie short last week. We didn't really make a pick with her on the line, and we should have. So my apologies to Melanie Newman. Thank you, Kevin, for setting me straight today. Uh, Orioles are going to be taking on the Blue Jays tonight at 637. You have Alex Cobb who, uh, pitching with his 373 ERA going against the newest Blue Jay, Taiwan Walker, who they acquired from the Mariners just this past week. He's 2-2 two and two with a 4 ERA. Got off to a slow start, but he's thrown seven. He's thrown 13 innings, uh, allowing just 10 hits and 3 earned runs with 13 strikeouts in his last two starts. So Walker making his Blue Jays debut. Hopefully the Orioles can make it a, you know, can spoil his debut. Zach, you have some breaking news. Um, Nothing's happened yet, but some rumors flying out there that you just saw on Twitter recently. Yeah, so it looks like the Braves and the White Sox are both in with the Angels on trying to acquire Dylan Bundy. So that is a you know potential move that the Orioles you know could look at, and you know obviously they traded Dylan Bundy in the offseason, got four prospects back in that deal, four pitching prospects, uh, four very young pitching prospects. And, uh, you know, maybe that return for the Angels nets them a top 100 prospect. Dylan Bundy has been ace-like this season. So he's still got a couple years of control left. So it might be a really nice return. Yeah, if you just saw me counting, I think that uh, he's under control through the end of next season. Next season, okay. Um, so, yeah, somebody could, it, it wouldn't just be a rental. You'd be buying for this year and then for all of next year. And Dylan Bundy, the way he's pitching right now, we talked about it earlier in the show, 258 ERA right now, 44 strikeouts and 33. It's either 33 or 38 in the third innings. He is he's pitching as well as he ever pitched in his hottest streaks in Baltimore. Uh, former number one, a former first round pick, former one number one overall prospect in Dylan Bundy can really help a surging team like the White Sox, who just surged into first place with their win last night, or the Braves, who are in first place but they've been scuffling a little bit recently. Uh, Dylan Bundy can help a contender win and get into the postseason. Yeah, you definitely can. The White Sox, I see as a team who are really, really, really close to just adding that one more piece that could put them over the top because they are a really, really young, talented team. They've got a, just a lot of guys that are on the up-and-coming, and they've got Dallas Keuchel in that rotation now. Lucas Giolito. Giolito, of course, is throwing a hitter the other day. It's it's an unbelievable team. It's going to be – they could even run the 2020s as far as the playoffs go. They, they're going to be amazing. Well, and Dylan Bunny would be a great add. Well, and, and that's a team that – has really just started to gel offensively. And Carnacion is still hitting below the Mendoza line, but uh, uh, 
uh, Jose Abreu has just been going nuts. He has he had six home runs in a three game series, which is a yeah. major league record. He did that recently. Won AL Player of the Week. Uh, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, um, Tim Anderson. That is a lineup that's stacked. They have a solid rotation, and Dylan Bundy could just be the missing piece to get them back to the playoffs for the first time in, in a really long time. So, guys, that's going to do it for us here on the Bat Around. Thanks to our guest, Stan the Fan Charles, who does his weekly segment. Thank you to John Mioli, who came on the show. Especially, John came on on short notice. Um, so that was great of him to do that. And Kevin Brown joined the show, picked Renato Nunez uh, right out from under Zach's nose and take to rake. Uh, really appreciate all the guests coming on the show. We will talk to you next week, and hopefully we'll be talking about a revamped and resurged Baltimore Orioles squad. Until then, we'll see you next time.